Hello everybody, Jim Paris. I am here on Crescent Beach, Florida. Happy Easter. As you can see, people behind me are already beginning to gather for Easter sunrise services. Uh, so excited they were able to uh, have the Easter sunrise service again this year. Uh, we've got a special Easter edition for you tonight of Jim Paris Live. In our first interview, we talk about the historical evidence for the life of Jesus Christ. And in our second interview, we'll be discussing the Shroud of Turin. Could it have been the actual burial cloth of Jesus? All of that tonight on this special Easter edition of Jim Paris Live. My guest this hour, his name is Dr. Gary Habermas. He is one of the world's foremost experts on historical evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You may also know him due to his association with Liberty University. He's a distinguished professor of apologetics and philosophy and chairman of the Department of Philosophy and Theology at Liberty University in Lynchburg, Virginia. Tonight we're going to be talking about his fantastic book, The Case for the Resurrection of Jesus. Dr. Gary Habermas, thank you so much for joining us, sir. I'm glad to be on with you. Thank you for the introduction. Well, you're welcome. And uh, I'll tell you, I was told by my production people it's okay to call you Gary, so I'm going to do that. <laughs> uh, it, it takes a lot to earn a Ph.D. I don't have one, so I greatly respect uh, your your credentials there, sir. Uh, let, let, let me start with a really practical question. I want to get into this, and I'm glad we've got the entire hour of the show here, minus commercials, to do so. I have always believed as a Christian myself that without the resurrection, the whole deal falls apart. The whole idea of Christianity, the Christian faith, it's all gone in, in a puff of smoke, in my view. Now, there are others that have different views on this, that can somehow come to a peace with the idea that, well, you know, maybe he really, you know, maybe Christ really did not rise from the dead. Maybe it wasn't really a physical resurrection. And, you know, in the end, we can still kind of somehow have a, a religion or, or a faith after that. I can't do that. Let me ask you, sir, how significant do you believe the resurrection is to our faith as a Christian? I will take your view of the two. Um, and, and I think it's kind of hard to argue with it because I know things change in the modern time. And I think, I don't know, people pick and choose what they want to believe from Scripture and what they don't. But I think... Paul is pretty uh, clear in First Corinthians 15, mostly verses 12 through 20, where he says, I mean, everything you can think of, if Christ hasn't been raised yet, he basically asks the question, what is Christianity without the resurrection? And his answer is nothing. Uh, twice he says your faith is vain, which is interesting. He uses a different Greek word each time, but... It, it means empty, fruitless, void. That's what Christianity is without the resurrection. He says, um, if Christ had not been raised, you've died in your sins. And because I lost my wife to uh, cancer, I'm remarried now, but because I lost my wife to cancer in 1995, um, the, the verse that really kind of grabs me is the one that says, if Christ had not been raised to the dead, our loved ones who have died in Christ have died in vain. So, you know, verse 19 is probably the most pessimistic of all. If uh, if in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are the most miserable of all people. And one of the things, 
Yes, sir. And, and one of the things that uh, the writers like like yourself, Lee Strobel, and, and others look at is the changed life of the people uh, that that were there at the time. And we're going to get into that tonight. But but one of the things that I thought was significant was my pastor had spoke recently about the resurrection. I don't know if it was this Easter or the prior Easter, but it was interesting to note that right after the death of Jesus, that many of the disciples were reportedly, they had gone back to their jobs. I mean, in other words, in their world, had he not resurrected, the deal was over too. So they they, they had to conclude that they were following a Tony Robbins-like person who made this claim, and it was clear that the claim was made because if the claim were not made, um, they might have continued on with their faith if Jesus had sort of set it up that, like, well, I'm going to die, and didn't really explain what he expected to happen or what he promised would happen. But they immediately got the cue that, okay, there's a crucifixion, he's dead, we now go back to our day job. How significant... Is it to, say, juxtapose that with a later reaction of them becoming martyrs? Well, I, I think it's worthwhile. I, I think if, if you want, you do have that passage where they said, uh, I'm going fishing, um, but in John 21. But um, maybe the most uh, provocative, surprising, first of all, in that same passage you just talked about, First Corinthians 15, and I was and I mentioned verses 12 through 20. Well, just 13 verses later, in uh, 1533, Paul says, "If uh, the dead are not raised," and he just got done saying that dead being raised depends on Christ's resurrection. So you could say, "If Christ has not been raised, then let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die." Now. A lot of people think that phrase, you know, eat, drink, and be merry, or eat and drink for tomorrow we die, you know, there's this kind of popular thought that that's from the 60s. You know, it's a 60s kind of line. But Paul's quoted the Old Testament. And so that's been around for a long, long time, more than 2,000 years. And he's saying that if Jesus has not been raised from the dead, I mean, let's just pick a Playboy-type philosophy um, I, I mean, a partying, you know, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas kind of thing. Um, yeah, I and mean, there's not much difference. If Christ has not been raised from the dead, do whatever you want, party, uh, because what else do you have to look forward to? There's nothing else. Now, one of the things I, I saw uh, online, I saw a number of your presentations, uh, and I want to ask you if the book, which I haven't completely read yet, we just received it, just two or three days ago, so I haven't had a chance to completely read it, but it will be read. I guarantee you that. Um, and I appreciate the additional copies you sent us as well for our library. Um, well, did they? I didn't even know they did. But they, yes, they did. I, I greatly appreciate that. Right. Of course, a, a, a non-Christian, you know, one of the things that happens is uh, I was having a conversation with a young person over the Christmas holidays, a uh, very smart young guy, college graduate, uh, in his early 20s, and uh, he immediately opined that, uh, look, we don't even know that Jesus really ever lived. I mean, no less getting into what he really did, whether he, you know, had performed miracles, whether he really was crucified and resurrected. We can't even establish that he lived. And I said, whoa, 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 whoa. That, that is not the case. And so we had a very in-depth discussion, and I at least got him 
that far on the spectrum that he had to accept that the historicity of Christ, that Christ Jesus, a man from Nazareth, really did live and is recorded in history. How important is it that you start with that point with people? Because there's so many people that think of this entirely as a legend, including that Jesus never even really lived. Yeah, it, it's becoming uh, more uh, in vogue. I made a prediction to a Ph.D. class just uh, about a week and a half ago that um, I just guessed what some new trends might be. And one of them I said was, um, in my opinion, um, you're going to get more and more guys jumping on the bandwagon saying Jesus never lived. Now, today, there's virtually no one, virtually nobody in a, in a cognate field, historian, New Testament scholar, theologian, classicist, who holds a position in, a, in an accredited university or seminary who says that. But I think it's going to happen more because, like a guy just said in a in a in a book re- in, in a review in a in a prominent uh, journal just about a month ago, uh, the, the evidence is so good. He said that Christians have less and less non-Christians have less and less debris to hide behind. We've got a break coming up here, Doctor Habermas. We'll take the break when we come back. We'll talk about the historical evidence of Jesus's life and also his death. And what happened to his followers after his death? Stay tuned. You are listening to Jim Harris Live. Okay, we are back. My guest this hour is Dr. Gary Habermas. His book, The Case for the Resurrection of Jesus. And I'm on the Amazon page here. So you can find him on Amazon. And he has quite a number of books here. The Historical Jesus. Uh, did the resurrection happen in defense of miracles? A lot of different uh, uh, books here uh, to take a look at. And uh, the one that we're looking at here right now also has a, a computer disk in the back of it, which uh, has a number of other resources. Does that come, Dr. Habermas, with every book that's purchased the interactive CD? Every book, yep. Wow, that's tremendous. And that, that book, I see that's on Amazon for just under 20 bucks, folks, and it's a very large book, including an interactive CD. So where we left off, Dr. Habermas, was we're talking about the historical proof that Jesus actually lived. Now, one of the things that I want to establish here early on is that, uh, of course, for those folks that uh, are not believers who don't necessarily accept the inerrancy of the Bible, uh, we're talking about Jesus living the proof that he lived and walked this earth separately and aside from the Bible. That can be established in what we might call secular uh, historical documents. Isn't that true? I think that's clear, yes. In fact, yes. the vast majority of critics will admit that. It's, it's a very small group of people who generally are not... There's a few of them who are trained in relevant fields, but the majority are not. We're talking about bloggers. We're talking about popular folks, um, not the scholars. It's not a very popular view there. And so what you, you end up having with someone is a much more substantive discussion because I found that when you move from the realm of, well, Jesus wasn't even real, to the fact that he actually was historically recorded as a person on this earth, now you have sort of that pilot, Pontius Pilate moment, which is 
Now that we know he's real, what will you do with this man? Right, right. You're asking that question. What will you do with this man who really did walk the earth? Um, so I, I love kind of looking at it that way in terms of, of evangelism. But then we get into a little bit of a tougher topic, right? Because now we're, we're going to go from he really lived and walked on the earth to uh, the whole issue of the resurrection. And one of the things that has always made me feel so confident in the resurrection was uh, here we have someone claiming to be the son of God who is undermining what's you know going on in the in the government uh, the roman government becoming so concerned about what this guy is saying and especially the uh the uh you know the uh, religious leaders of the day we've got to get rid of this guy because he's just he's he's really causing a lot of trouble getting people to possibly believe he really is the messiah and the idea that they would not have closely guarded his tomb and done everything they could do to make sure that they could prove to the people that he really did die because just just crucifying him might have made him a martyr and the movement might have spread even more like wildfire if the body somehow mysteriously disappeared so if anybody had a motivation at the time to be sure that they knew that this guy had had been crucified, that he'd been put in a tomb, that he did that nothing was going to happen, no shenanigans. Uh, what's your view of how concerned the, the the powers that be might have been at the time to be sure that this kind of a thing could not have happened? Well, I think that we have all kinds of assurances, and I think one of the neat things about the assurances is, like any kind of history, um, evidences are better the more you have the earlier they are, and the more different angles that they come in from. In other words, if you had five arguments and they were all early, well, that's great. But they're all Christian. Okay, well, you know, you guys are a little bit prejudiced. This is something you believe in, and it's really big. Um, but if you have arguments from different kinds of Christians, different parts of the Roman Empire, you have non-Christians, you have sources outside the New Testament, sources inside the New Testament, uh, sources that even critics will agree with you are very, very early. That, that, that variety is very important. And to your question, you've got Roman soldiers who had a job to do. But by the way, just, just not long after that, remember Jesus uh, leaves the earth after 40 days appearing to disciples. The only place that's mentioned is Acts chapter 1. Well, just about a dozen chapters later, Peter is in prison, and an angel lets him out. And he goes back to the disciples, and the little girl who Rhoda, I think is her name, she's, she uh, sees him, and, and she leaves him at the front door where she goes tell everybody, you know, and they can't quite believe Peter's really there. Well, my point is, the, when Herod finds out that these Roman soldiers, they wake up in the morning and they go, uh, hey, where's this guy? I don't know, but the jail cell was still locked and we're standing in front and nobody came in and nobody came out and we're still here. Well, they seem to have done their job and Herod had them all killed. You just have to read a few chapters further and you see it. But, so you've got the Roman soldiers with a, with a real motivation to make sure. Secondly, I think just as powerful, maybe more more powerful, is that you have the Jewish leaders. And they're there, and they want to make sure that, that he doesn't you know get off the cross or out of the tomb alive. And that's important. 
um, you've got, you know, we got this idea that all of his followers were believers, but we find out later that, that, that a couple of them could ask pretty good questions. They were skeptical enough to, uh, you know, that, that all the five major theories that are aimed at the resurrection of Jesus, the, the famous ones that you handle in apologetics, all five of them, you can find them in the Gospels. They're all there, and three of the five are thought up by Christians. Uh, my, my, my favorite theory, I don't know if this fits into the five, is that he really did not completely die yeah, <laughs> on the cross. Yeah, yeah. No, that, that, and then some, somehow he recovered from from this, uh, from the crucifixion, Apparently, and escaped. Yeah. He was able to be revived and, and nursed back to health, and, and that, right. that explained how he was able to, to, to reappear to people. Right. Yeah, now that's the only one out of the five. I said there's five of them are in the Gospels. That's there, but it's the only one that's not really proposed. It's just hinted at. And the person who hints at it, of the five major theories, three of them are thought up by believers, and two of them by unbelievers. This is one of the unbeliever ones, and it's not supposed, as I said. It's just, you know, let's just make sure kind of a thing. It's Pilate, and when Pilate finds out in the book of Mark that um, uh, he had died so quickly, I like the uh, the King James rendering here, and I usually use the King James, but the wording here is pretty cool. It says, when Pilate marveled that he was so soon dead... We don't talk like that so much today, but that's pretty cool. He marveled that he was so soon dead, and he said, Hey, we don't want this guy to get through our fingers, are you sure? So they went out to the crucifixion site, brought the, the uh, centurion in. That's pretty serious business if you're the centurion. We go around killing people who aren't doing their job. Um, is this guy dead? Yep, he is. Uh, yeah, because uh, who knows it? Yeah, and, and a centurion, you know, uh, with... Uh you know, be sort of like a, a high-ranking official at the time within the military. Important stuff. All right, when we come back, did Jesus really say he was going to come back from the dead? What was it he really said? And we're going to take this story further and look at some of the historical evidence of his resurrection. Stay tuned. You're listening to Jim Parrish Live. All right, we are back. The website is ChristianMoney.com. The blog is blog.ChristianMoney.com. Interesting note, I wrote an article about Michael Savage's new book, and uh, Savage saw the article, put it up on his website. We've been slammed this week with traffic, uh, thanks to Michael Savage, so we appreciate that greatly. All right, in this hour, my guest is Dr. Gary Habermas. The book is The Case for the Resurrection of Jesus. Let's go ahead and do this. Let's open up the phone lines. We'll take some of your questions on this. We'll also take questions by email, and then I've got my own questions. So uh, we'll have some fun here in our last two segments. The toll-free number, if you're listening live on a Sunday night, 877-317-6432, 877-317-6432. And the email is jim at christianmoney.com. Of course, always include your city when emailing the question in jim at christianmoney.com or toll-free 877-317-6432. Dr. Habermas, uh, talking here about uh, the resurrection of Jesus, did Jesus really make it clear that he was going to resurrect from the dead? Or was it kind of 
in code. If this temple is, this temple will be destroyed, I'll rebuild it in three days. Did he ever come out and make it clear that this is what's going to happen? I'm going to die, and then I'm going to come back from the dead. Right. Yeah. Now, the, the, I always like to use sources that the critics prefer so that I leave them with as little, let's say, wiggle room as possible. Their favorite gospel is the Gospel of Mark. It's the earliest. They think it's the, the, the best source. Okay. Uh, Mark predicts Jesus' resurrection several times. He predicts it in Mark um, 8, Mark 9, Mark 10, and then again in Mark 14. And in Mark 14, verse 28, he says, uh, I will, this, uh, I'll die, I'll be killed, and I'll go before you into Galilee, and there you will see me. So he predicts an appearance to them in Galilee. Uh, I, I think the, the biggest oddity about this is the disciples just, you know, kind of don't get the idea. Uh, Peter shows up with the sword when the... Uh, Soldiers come to take Jesus. Uh, he says, I'll stand by you till the end, even to death. And Jesus said, you know, you'll deny me. Um, and he says, no way. But he does. And uh, I think it's Luke who says, Peter, when, when he denied him the third time, he walked out and uh, wept bitterly that he had denied his Lord. So I think the point is that the disciples didn't get it, but that doesn't mean Jesus didn't say it. And Jesus says it very carefully. A, a good friend of mine, uh, Mike Lacona, co-author on my uh, that book right there, Mike, Mike actually did the best work of that book, so I'm glad to recommend Mike. Um, Mike wrote an article in a peer-reviewed uh, critical journal, uh, not evangelical journal, and he gave six reasons why we know that Jesus is raised the dead. And the reasons he gave, sorry, Six reasons why we know Jesus predicted that he was going to be raised from the dead. And the reasons he gave are the kind of reasons that, that the skeptics uh, prefer. And one of them is that it, it's mentioned in, in several sources. You know, Luke's, Luke 1, 1 to 4 says, I checked out many sources before I wrote this Life of Jesus. And critics have a way of thinking they can trace, you know, how many different sources there are. And uh, Jesus' predictions are what, what the critics call multiply attested. They have, they have different predictions from different sources. Even the parable, that's a different kind of teaching. You know, a parable is not the same as a lecture. And uh, so it's clear. In fact, I think the critics are starting to, starting to see this. Um, I'm going to guess, maybe more than not, think that Jesus predicted his uh, death or at least suspected it. And uh, perhaps his uh, resurrection slash exaltation after death. Now, one one of the debates I saw online on YouTube, you were on a some kind of a television broadcast, and it was a split screen, and there was a guy debating you, and his position was, look, this whole idea of of the the leader of a religion being killed and then coming back to life, this is. Uh, all part of Greek mythology and, and right. sort of the legends uh, at the time, and, and, and you really refuted that. Uh, I wanted to ask you maybe more of a, a larger question. How common has it been in history that a religious leader would say, 
all right, they're going to kill me, and then I'm coming back uh, from the dead. In physical form, I'm coming back, you're going to see me. Uh, how often did that happen? Because that's quite a promise to make. I mean, talk about waiting for the payoff pitch. I mean, if you're going to say something like that and not deliver on it, that's the end of the game. So how many times in major religions do we see this kind of a setup for something so amazing that had to happen? Well, uh, that's a great question. I would say zero. And here's why I would say zero. Um, there's an article on my website, GaryHaberbass.com. Um, people can download it. Nothing is, uh, nothing is for sale on my, on my website. So hopefully people can use it. But I think it's, it may be the lead article under the left hand side tab, uh, articles, journal articles. The lead article is um, an argument called Resurrection Claims in Non-Christian Religions. Resurrection Claims in Non-Christian Religions. And what the guy, what I'm arguing there is that a lot of the guys who do this kind of thing, we're talking about major founders of major, major world religions. If you're going to compare to some like person, let's compare Jesus to, uh, you know, take a choice, uh, Buddha, uh, Confucius, Zoroaster, um, Muhammad would be in there, right? Uh, uh, the Muslim, yeah, the, uh, Muhammad, um, uh, Krishna for the Hindus. But, you know, pick, pick whomever you want. If you want to take Old Testament figures, take um, you know Elijah, Daniel, Abraham. Uh, you know, take a choice. And what I argue that article is, and give a lot of uh, detail for this is that no founder of a major world religion is believed by his own followers to be raised from the dead. Now, if no major founder, whether Buddha or Moses, or if, if none of the founders of these major religions are believed to have been raised from the dead, uh, if you follow me here, it, it would be worse for them if their leader predicted ahead of time than if he didn't. Right. So, so then, so then it, it kind of sets up the sixty-four thousand dollar question, which is that if Jesus, you know, Jesus is saying I'm going to die, I'm going to be killed, and I'm going to come back from the dead, and you're going to see me. Now, if you set the table that way, and you don't make that reappearance, right, right, uh, it's it's over. I mean, all, all of these people they're they're waiting breathlessly to see what's going to happen, and. Uh, there were doubters. Thomas, for example, was a doubter. Many of them were doubters. But something happened, and it had to be something so amazing and so convincing that these people, many of them, went on to be martyrs. They went from coward uh, to martyr, uh, that they were so unwilling to deny their faith that they actually went to their deaths, brutal deaths, because of what they believed happened. And uh, we'll let you take it there. I know we've only got uh, uh, a few seconds here, but uh, well, let's do this. Let's set it up. When we come back from the break, we've got a few questions that have come in. After the break, we're going to come back, and we're going to get into the issue of what could have happened that caused these people, uh, the Apostle Paul, the disciples, the followers of Jesus, the people who were living at the time, what could have kept Christianity going? If, in fact, Jesus said, I'm the Son of God, I'm going to be killed, and I'm going to come back to life, and you're going to see me. So he sets himself up in the most 
unbelievable scenario. And this is it. I mean, either he's going to come back and follow through on what he promised, or he's not. Exactly. Very interesting. We're going to get the answers to all of that and the historical backup right after this. Stay tuned. You are listening to Jim Harris Live. All right, we are back. This is our final segment with Dr. Gary Habermas of Liberty University. In my view, uh, the world's foremost authority on the case for the resurrection of Jesus and the historicity of Jesus and his books. You can get them at Amazon. And as you mentioned, he's got a great website, GaryHabermas.com, and that's with an M. So it's H-A-B like in boy, E-R-M like in Michael, A-S. GaryHabermas.com. And by the way, folks, uh, this program will be available on replay as all of our archives of the show are free. And that's been the case from day one. So you can go to iTunes, you can go to YouTube, you can go to Stitcher. Where else are we? We're on uh, SoundCloud. This would be a great uh, program if you want to grab it and share it with a friend. I know this one's going to be huge uh, in the downloads this week. Uh, all right, so we're, t- we're now up to the point of the resurrection of Jesus and the historical proof of that. We've got a question coming in from an emailer from Chicago. And uh, Dr. Habermas, I want you to kind of work this into your answer because this is a great question. So where we end up with uh, Lee Strobel's book, uh, your argument, uh, many of the arguments are, look, if he didn't really rise from the dead, how do we explain how people reacted after the fact? Uh, you know, how do you explain... What, what the disciples do in terms of going on, uh, many of them to be martyred. How do you explain the Apostle Paul, a persecutor, a murderer of Christians, uh, to, to have a changed life? How do we explain all this if not for the resurrection? So here's a question from Chicago. Uh, they say that they've been seeing a lot of things here on the Internet denying that there's evidence of even the existence of the Apostle Paul and even the disciples. And so... How do you make the argument, Gary, that we have uh, evidence of the resurrection by way of these changed lives if now the skeptics are saying, hey, Paul and the disciples never really existed. We have no proof of that. Well, uh, okay. First of all, let's go back to a little part of the discussion we had earlier. Who says this sort of thing? Um, I know one scholar who says that Paul may not have existed. As far as I know, of the scholars, there's one. Now, he could be right. A person who's not a scholar could be right. Anybody can say anything and be right. But usually when we want to, you know, check something out, when my tooth is hurting, I don't ask my paper boy. Um, When I want my lawn mowed, I don't go to my family doctor. I go to people who do these things and who know you know, why is this there and what's this and let's solve your problem. Okay. Even the, the biggest name skeptics will tell you that this is is not a good argument. Now, let, let me just use an example. The best-known skeptic in America is named Bart Ehrman. He's a former evangelical, and he calls himself. He says, I'm not a believer. I'm not a Christian. I'm an agnostic lean toward atheism, an agnostic lean toward atheism. And he is, he publishes most of his books with either uh, Oxford University Press or Harper. He's a university professor at a major university, North Carolina. And he says that one of the major arguments 
for Jesus. He's got a whole chapter on two things. And one of them is Galatians chapter 1, and we can add Galatians chapter 2, because skeptics accept about seven of Paul's books. And Galatians is one of the books they'll grant. Anyway, Paul goes up to Jerusalem to see the apostles at, as nearly as we can tell, he gets, Paul does the math for us, 35 A.D. He's there at 35. So let's say we put the cross at 30 A.D. And Paul's trip to Jerusalem is 35. He spends two weeks, 15 days, with Peter and James, the brother of Jesus. Now, the, the big three here, Peter, Paul, James, the brother of Jesus, are about as big as you're going to get in the early church in terms of influence. They're all there. And Bart Ehrman says, now look, We've got an early source that Paul received this just five years after the cross. Forget that Mark is written in 40, 40 years later. We've got this report from just five years later, and they're talking about the nature of the gospel. Well, of course, the resurrection is part of the gospel. The gospel, when it's defined in the New Testament, by the way, the factual side is always the, de- the deity, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And so you've got Peter, James, and Paul. Okay. The next chapter, he goes back to Jerusalem a few years later, and John is there. Now, this is key, because there's nobody in the early church who's more influential. Name one. Name one person. I'm not talking about Jesus, but name one person in the early church after Jesus is gone who's more influential than Peter, Paul, John, and James, the brother of Jesus. They're by far the most influential. They agree with Paul that the gospel he's preaching is the right one. In Paul's words, they added nothing to me. They added nothing to me. And in 1 Corinthians 15 and 11, by the way, which is another book accepted by the critics, Paul says, whether you get this from these guys or whether you get it from me, you're going to get the exact same answer on the resurrection. We all are witnesses. All right, so you got the big four. Now, what about them being martyrs? Uh, someone just wrote to me the other day and said, we don't have anything on the martyrs for hundreds of years, right? Wrong. Now, I wouldn't go around and say what Christians say frequently. We can prove that all 12 were martyred or 11 of the 12 were martyred. I wouldn't say that. I think all 12 of them were willing to be martyrs. But how, did, how many do we know were martyred? You, we have the martyrdom. We have the reports of three of the big four, Peter, Paul, and James, in the, from the first century source. And one of them's not even Christian, Josephus. And we, the last remaining guy there is John. We have him. A lot of Christians think he wasn't martyred. We have a second century source, which is still very early, a second century source for John's martyrdom. So here's Barterman, the best-known skeptic in the, in the country, saying he says this is as close as we get to the eyewitnesses. This is a strong argument for the historicity of Jesus. That's Bart Ehrman saying that, who's an unbeliever, an agnostic, leaning toward atheism, the most influential critic today. All right, now this is a, another great question coming in from Florida. Uh, they, they say, well, how do you respond to the idea that, look, uh, Muslims will die for their faith. Uh, they'll strap a bomb to themselves and die. 
the fact that uh, these uh, people, that you know, the, the disciples, the Apostle Paul, the, many of the believers in the early church, okay, so they gave, they would give their life for their faith. Well, Muslims today, they'll give their life for their faith. So how does that prove anything? All right. First of all, it's a great question, and it's true. I have nothing to say about the facts of that question. There are many people and many religions, and I, I don't think we'd have to look very far, frankly, to find an atheist, say, Marxist, who, you know, from 1960 to date, would have died for Marxism. I think about the uh, Buddhist priests who uh, set themselves on fire during Vietnam to protest the war. So, yes, we can, we can find this in every uh, religion. Okay, now what's the difference? All right. Let's compare a Christian missionary today with any other person and any other religion or philosophy or political view which gives, which gives their life for something. Here's what we can agree on. They both died. Here's what else we can agree on. They were both willing to die. Here's something else we can agree on. They wouldn't have done it if they didn't believe it. Now, at that point, the person says, well, see, what's the difference? Okay, here's the difference. Anybody today who dies doesn't know firsthand what the facts were 2,000 years ago, right? Nobody was alive 2,000 years ago. So if a Christian dies for their faith, they're believing, say, Paul, or they're believing Peter, or they're believing James. And a Muslim may be believing Muhammad, and a Jewish person might be believing Moses. But people today are dying for what they believe somebody else knows to be true, many, many years ago. Okay, here's the difference. We have testimony of these same four men, Peter, James, John, Paul. We have testimony from the big four, and we don't know if they saw the risen Jesus. We have them saying, I did, but they know whether they saw Jesus or not. We don't. I mean, we can report it by faith, but, you know, we can listen to their testimony. And they say, I've seen the risen Jesus. Okay. Now, when they die for their faith, that's a world of difference. When those four guys die for their faith, what, what does dying for your faith mean? Everybody agrees. You die for your faith willingly, or even if you're just willing to die for your faith, it proves that you believe the message. Yeah, these were the inside guys. So, you know, the analogy I make is, look, if you were an assistant in a magic show, and you knew that it was all fake. You wouldn't ask the magician to make you really levitate while you were out to dinner with him. You, you would know it's a trick. But these were all the inside people that were right there, and they believed that it was real, and they were willing to give their lives. Gary Habermas, great interview. We'll have you back, sir. God bless. We'll talk to you next week, folks. His name is Barry Schwartz. I want to give you a quick background on him. Barry Schwartz was the official documenting photographer for the Shroud of Turin Research Project, the team that conducted the first in-depth scientific examination of the Shroud in 1978. He is currently the co-author of a Shroud book with Ian Wilson titled Turin Shroud. And uh, the illustrated evidence uh, is the subtitle, and he's also the editor and publisher of the internationally recognized Shroud of Turin website. And uh, Barry Schwartz, welcome to Jim Paris Live. Well, Jim, thank you so much for having me on your program. Uh, I want to start by making sure that I have your title right. You are not a doctor, am I correct? That's correct, um, although my Jewish mother would certainly like that. 
Well, I, I, did, I didn't want to. I didn't want to shortchange you. And I don't know if it was just me, but like about 45 seconds ago, I heard in my headphones like the sound, like a sound effect of like a bullet. So, I, did you hear that on your end too? I did not hear that. Okay, well maybe that was uh, just in my headphones. So I was wondering what just happened. Uh, you know, talk about uh, trying to avoid conspiracies, and then I hear the the, the, the sounds of the Rocky Mountains of Colorado, and a lot of my neighbors said we all have guns up here. So, so who knows, right? It could have been somebody. I didn't hear anything uh, sitting here in the living room. So. Well, Barry, so good to have you with us. I've enjoyed listening to you on a number of other interviews. And one of the things that I want to start with is um, there's probably some younger people listening tonight. And my daughter, who is 24, uh, she was asking me who's coming on the show this week, and I, and I mentioned to you, to, to her, your name, and I mentioned the topic, the Shroud of Turin, and she said, what's the Shroud of Turin? And in fact, my mother, who is 71, asked me the same question today, what is the Shroud of Turin. So for those not familiar with this, let's not start too far ahead. Maybe you can give us sort of like the one or two minute Wikipedia overview of what the topic is here tonight. Okay, well, the, the Shroud of Turin is a 14 and a half foot long, three and a half foot wide sheet of linen cloth uh, that bears blood stains, burn marks, scorches, and the image forensically accurate of a crucified man, front and back, with all of the wounds as documented in the New Testament and the Gospels of what was done to Jesus of Nazareth. And many people believe that this is the cloth that wrapped his body in the tomb once he was placed in the tomb and removed from the cross. Uh, and because it bears an image, of course, it's been a topic of conversation literally for more than a, a, for centuries, but it was in 1898 when the first photograph was allowed to be made of it that uh, sort of the scientific era of the study of the shroud began because one of the things that was determined when they photographed it is that the image on the shroud itself has its lights and darks reversed as a photographic negative would. So when you photograph it and you look at the negative, it becomes a positive. It reverses again the lights and darks. And that's a very unique property. There aren't many images on the planet that, that can you know, have those kind of properties. And so the shroud has been an object of controversy and study for literally for decades, particularly uh, when our team was permitted in 1978 to perform the first in-depth scientific examination of the cloth. And our goal was simply to determine how the image formed. Is it a painting? Is it a photograph? Is it a scorch or a rubbing? Those were all proposed as possible theories for how the image was formed. And so our team went to Turin in 1978. We spent five days and nights nonstop working around the clock to gather data, the next three years reducing the data and evaluating it and writing it into uh, articles that were then submitted to independent, peer-reviewed publications, scientific journals. And so our work is in the scientific literature, credible scientific literature. And uh, ironically, our purpose was to determine how the image was formed and we came back unable to answer that question. We could tell you where it's not. It isn't a, a painting. It isn't a photograph. It isn't a scorch. But we don't know of a mechanism that can make an image with the properties inherent in the image on the Shroud of Turin. This is just fascinating to me. And there's so many questions that I want to ask you. But the first thing that I want to establish here, if I understand this correct, and please tell me if this is not right, I understand it that you yourself are not a Christian. 
you are an Orthodox Jew. Is that is that correct? Well, I was, I was raised an Orthodox Jew, and I, I want to be real clear about that. I'm not a practicing Jew today, but uh, I was raised in a, an Orthodox family, not ultra-Orthodox, but Orthodox. Both my parents were immigrants from Poland uh, right before World War II, uh, so I was first generation born here. And so I was <clears throat> raised in that environment. My grandparents lived with us. I mean, it was like fiddler on the roof. But uh, in the end, ultimately, I walked away from Judaism as soon as I had my bar mitzvah. I was sort of finished with it. And I never really looked back again until I was in my 50s. And I became more publicly involved with the Shroud. It took until 1995 before I even I was convinced that it was authentic. And I held it in my hands 20 years earlier. Uh, so it took me a while, but ultimately once I was convinced that it was authentic and I decided to put the information materials that I had collected over the years onto the Internet on Shroud.com, um, it was then that people started asking me about my faith. Before that, it really wasn't much of a topic of conversation in my life. And I had gone for all those years without you know, even thinking much about God, to be honest. And ultimately, I was forced to confront my beliefs because people were asking, well, okay, you think it's authentic, what do, you, what do you believe about faith? And, of course, that sort of forced me to confront my faith. And as I said, God wasn't even part of my life. Uh, but ultimately, in looking in my heart and realizing that upbringing I had been brought up in and the environment I had been brought up in, ultimately, I found that God had been there all along. So how many Jews can say that the Shroud of Turin led them back to their faith in God? I can say that. Uh, I'm not a Christian, I'm not a Messianic Jew, that much to the chagrin and disappointment of many of my friends out there, but but I'm doing the job I've been given to do, and if it comes to a point where that becomes uh, something I have to sort of decide, then I will. But as, as Very good. We're going we're gonna, to uh, turn you down there for a second. We've got a quick break. When we come back, more with our guest, Barry Schwartz, the Shroud of Turin. Don't miss it. Stay tuned. Tonight we're talking about here in hour two, the Shroud of Turin, and we're so excited to have our special guest, Barry Schwartz, with us. He was the official documenting photographer for the Shroud of Turin Research Project back in the late 1970s, early 80s. And, uh, Mr. Schwartz, I'm sorry that I, uh, asked you about your personal faith and all that. Um, I'm sure that you might guess the reason for that. Many of those who are skeptical about the Shroud of Turin, um, sort of raise the question of, uh, whether someone's personal faith in Jesus Christ might cause them to uh, to sort of taint uh, the results in any research they've done, uh, you know, having a, a predisposition, if you will, to authenticating this sure. as opposed to uh, coming out with what might be, uh, you know, damaging results. Um, so, so that's why we went there, and, I'm, and I hope that, uh, that wasn't overly personal. Not at all. As a matter of fact, it's, I think it's essential that people understand that when I was invited to be on that team, I said no. I didn't think I should get involved with something that might wind up along a religious vein that I didn't feel I had much interest or knowledge in. Uh, but it was about the image and the properties of that image that sort of attracted me. And ultimately, I'm, I stayed on the team. I was a skeptic. I remained a skeptic for almost 20 years after holding it in my hand in 78. It was, I think, about 17 years later before the evidence finally convinced me that this had to be the real thing. And so uh, I understand why people feel that way. And one of the reasons that I make it very clear up front that I'm Jewish background, that I'm not a Messianic Jew or a Christian, is that so people don't believe that I have that bias, because I certainly didn't. I did have a bias, but it was completely the opposite, the other direction. 
Yeah, that you said that you said your credibility, uh, your your views on this. We are going to take calls tonight uh, for Barry Schwartz, but we'll do that starting in our next segment, not in this segment, in our next segment. And I'll give the number out now if you want to make a note of it: eight seven seven three one seven six four three two eight seven seven three one seven six four three two. Or you can send your questions to me. Uh, Jim at ChristianMoney.com. We'll take email questions as well tonight. Jim at ChristianMoney.com. Uh, Barry, I have to ask you uh, what it was like to actually touch the Shroud of Turin. Now, maybe at that moment you didn't realize that you could have actually been touching the garment that Jesus Christ was wrapped in after he was crucified. I mean, if 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 that were to be authenticated and we were able to say, Yep, that is the garment. Would there, I mean, there would be no question that that would be perhaps the most important archaeological uh, item slash spiritual uh, item in the world's history. And there you were actually physically touching that. What was that moment like pondering the possibility, what if? Well, certainly we all understood that that was a possibility. Um, of course, at that moment in my life, uh, I had no emotional attachment to the subject matter. Because having been raised in a Jewish home, uh, I didn't have the emotional attachment to Jesus that any Christian normally would, of course. Um, so I didn't have that sort of hanging over me of, uh, at all. And so I just went in there more from an intellectual point of view and a science <clears throat> and imaging point of view. But, um, you know, I understood, and I think we all did, everybody on that team, there were three Jewish guys and the Mormon and some evangelicals and some Catholics and some Protestants and some atheists and agnostics. Um, I think everybody understood the significance of it, that it was important to a billion people on this planet. So we all took our work very seriously. But I did not have the kind of an emotional response that I'm sure some of the other team members did have that were good Christians, that probably had a lot more reverence at that moment in time than I might have had or some of the other team members might have had. So I think it's fair to say that, uh, you know, I went in there sort of neutral or negative and didn't have that connection that so many might have had. And so, you know, I, like I said at the beginning, I, I actually tried to quit the team at one point, but in the end I realized that, you know, this was something important to be involved with. It was a great privilege. And it wasn't until years later that I came to recognize what, what an amazing event this was in my life because it ultimately altered the course of my life as well. Not the way some of my Christian friends would like to hear, but it brought me onto a path that's a much better path than I would have been on otherwise. So I, I always say this, is that, you know, isn't it funny? Uh, what am I doing in the middle of all this? And in the, in the end, the answer might well be, isn't it funny how God always seems to pick a Jew to be the messenger, you know? And I'm, I'm yeah. one who brings the information. I don't have to put a spin on it. Uh, I was convinced by the scientific evidence, of which I was participating in gathering and, and studying. Um, and so I, I didn't come into this with any predisposition other than perhaps, yeah, it's the painting and we'll see the paint and we'll go home. I even said that out loud, much to my chagrin many, many years ago. You know, give us ten minutes and we'll see the paint and we'll go home. Now, we fast forward, and we know today that it's not a painting that uh, has occurred, and, and we, we may or may not have time to get into all of the, the reasons uh, why we know that. Of course, people can do their own research. But, but one of the questions then that comes up is, 
what then made the imprint that we now, of course, if we go on the Internet, type in Shroud of Turin, you can see both the negative and then, of course, the positive, which is where you can actually see the face of the person, you know, uh, believed to be Jesus Christ. What actually made that image? How did that image get transferred onto fabric? Do we know what that was, whatever it was? Well, actually, the answer is no. We don't know what it was because uh, the the image has very unique properties. Uh, One that I'm sure many people have heard about that is encoded with spatial or dimensional or depth information kind of like a topographical map, and people call that 3D. It's not quite 3D, but it's got properties like a 3D image, and that was part of the catalyst that even got our team interested in going to look at it because that's a rather unique property. There aren't too many images in the world that that even have that kind of a property. Um, But we really don't know of a mechanism that, after all of our research, uh, we were able to do a lot of chemistry and physics on the clock, on the image, and we don't know of a mechanism that can make an image with those chemical and specific physical properties. Uh, you can make something that looks like the shroud. That's not very hard with all the photographs of mine and of the others on the Internet. But to make something that passes all the same tests that our testing did on the shroud uh, so that uh, you get the same chemistry and physics as a result, no one has yet come up with a mechanism that can do that. Barry, with a minute to our next break, Describe the physical injuries of the man that was wrapped in that cloth based on what we can see from, from the, uh, the image transferred to the cloth. Okay. Scourging all over the head, not just of a pretty circle of thorns, but a massive, probably bush smashed onto his head with bloodstains covering his scalp. Working our way down, we have a spear wound in the side. The, both the back and the front of the body are covered with wounds from a Roman flagrum a three-thonged leather whip with lead weights at the end. Uh, there are blood stains at the back of the hands where crucifixion nails would have been an, an exit wound there. Uh, we have blood stains at the feet from, again, from crucifixion nails. So all of the uh, things described in the Gospels that were done... As described in the Gospels, and we want to talk about the crown of thorns a little bit more when we come back from this break. Barry Schwartz is our guest, the Shroud of Turin. You're listening to Jim Paris Live. Barry, your book, I checked it at Amazon. It's not in, it doesn't look like it's currently available at like a reasonable price. Is that, <laughs> no. is that, is there a place people can get your book currently or are you in the process of coming out with a new one soon? Well, unfortunately that book is out of print. It was published in 2000, so it's pretty hard to find copies of it these days. Uh, I don't have one currently in the offing. I'm working on other things. But there is one somewhere down the road. I just can't exactly say. Maybe uh, a Kindle version at some point soon. That might be a great option for you. Whatever I do, we would include certainly an e-book version of some sort. Absolutely. Okay, very good. Now, we're going to open it up for questions. We've already got some email questions coming in to jim at christianmoney.com. And that's fine. We'll get to those as we can. But as always, we take callers, live callers first. So if you want to get on the air right now, I have a bank of open lines right now for callers to talk to my guest, Barry. Uh, and we're going to be uh, asking uh, Barry Schwartz a little bit more about the crown of thorns in a moment. But you can speak to Barry Schwartz directly with your question. The number to dial 877-317-6432, 877-317-6432. And Barry, um, Okay, let's say that someone, 
by the fact that, all right, this might have been a person that was crucified around the same time as Jesus, and this may have legitimately been the garment that they were wrapped in. Look, there were thousands of people crucified by the Romans. So uh, why, do, why would we think that this particular uh, garment, uh, I, I mean, other than the fact that it sort of has this magical, mystical imprint that no one can figure out how it got on there, you know, in my mind, the answer to that is the crown of thorns, which I think would have been a unique uh, feature in the crucifixion of Jesus Christ that we would have not seen the crown of thorns on, uh, in other crucifixions. Is that a fair analysis? I would say that that is a spot-on answer. That's exactly what I was going to say, that what we have here is, yeah, they crucified him, they speared him, they scourged him, they did all these things to lots of people, but only one that we know of had all of those things applied to him, including this crown or cap of thorns. And I wanted to add one thing from, uh, from the earlier segment that the wounds depicted on the shroud are 100% forensically accurate, and that was determined by no less than three different forensic experts. So what we have there is not something that some artist depicted. This is the real thing. All right, now this is a weird question, uh, but I'm going to ask, ask it only because it's an interesting question coming in from an emailer in Chicago. Um, this person is saying, I'm going to paraphrase, that they have heard or read that there is some chance that there is the DNA of Jesus in this garment, and people might use current cloning technologies or whatnot, that they could actually create another Jesus. Now, that sounds really crazy to me, but is, in fact, their DNA of Jesus that we could find in this fabric, I mean, obviously for, for cloning or not, that's just a fascinating question. Is there the DNA there of this person that was crucified? The short answer is probably not. Um, and here's why. First of all, DNA is organic and degrades over time. And if this is what we believe it is, then the blood stains on there are over 2,000 years old. Uh, number one. Number two, you have to remember that the Shroud of Turin, was rolled up and unrolled hundreds of times through its history, held by the corners. People prayed over it, kissed it, leaned over it, touched it, wept over it. And everybody is shedding DNA constantly. We've, we've known that now for about the last eight or ten years. And consequently, when you do a DNA analysis from the Shroud of Turin, how do you know exactly who you're analyzing? Number one. Number two, the DNA analysis that was done in 1995 at the University of uh, Texas Health Science Center in San Antonio, um, they determined that it was man-human DNA, normal chromosomes, but there was not enough of the segments available for any kind of cloning or reproduction or even in-depth DNA analysis. So setting aside the uh, factor of contamination from all the people who handled it, including myself, um, putting aside all of that, the DNA is too old and degraded for any kind of cloning. You, you need a full profile for that. And it's unlikely they'll ever be able to obtain a true uh, profile from the shroud. And if they did, how would we be absolutely certain that that wasn't my DNA? I'm a Jewish man. <laughs> so is Jesus. So uh, the real issue with that, and, and because of the degradation in the age of the DNA, uh, remember, this cloth was exposed. This wasn't sealed up somewhere for a couple thousand years where it might be less in, uh, you know, impacted by the environment. 
this cloth that was hung in the, you know, from balconies for display at time. So it, it had a lot of exposure to the air and to sunlight and to ultraviolet and things that are destructive long-term to the organic substances of DNA. So bottom line is that person can rest assured they're not going to clone the Antichrist from the Shroud of Druid. Yeah, interesting. And, and you never know, you hear weird things out there. I just thought I would throw that one out there. Our guest tonight is, yeah, our guest tonight is Barry Schwartz, and we're talking about the Shroud of Turin. He was uh, one of the individuals, he was the official documenting photographer for the Shroud of Turin research project back in the late 1970s, early 80s. What do we know, Barry, about the chain of custody of the Shroud of Turin? So, so now it's a museum piece. Um, we know that. Yeah, but it's not really a museum. It's in the Cathedral of St. John the Baptist in Turin, by the way. Um, okay. And it's going on public display again next year. But now, what, what do we know about, so let's say we have the, we have the day after Jesus is, re- is resurrected, according to the gospel account, and then they go in, you know, the, the, the empty tomb, they, there's the burial cloth there, now, do we know what happened from that point to when people said, hey, this could be something significant. Let's start uh, considering this, uh, you know, the Shroud of Turin, quote-unquote, and start handling this in a more careful way, et cetera. Do we know the history there from the day of Jesus' day to present day or when we, we first uh, recognized the importance of this item? We don't have a completely unbroken chain of custody. There are gaps in the history of the Shroud, and the first gap is the first 250 years. And there's a reason for that, though. People have to remember, this is a Jewish burial Shroud and a Jewish burial. The cloth contains blood, which by Jewish law must be buried with the body. And to make it even more unpalatable, it contains an image, which is forbidden to this day by Jewish and Muslim law. And so they couldn't very well come running out of the tomb saying, look what we found. Or they might have been the next ones on a cross and the cloth destroyed. Now, it would have had to have been carefully hidden and secreted away and preserved probably as a family treasure, a secret treasure, for at least the first 250 years. Now, why do I say 250? Because, you know, the man of the shroud has a unique appearance to him, and yet everybody looks at it and says, oh, yeah, that's Jesus. That's the way Jesus looks. Well, 250 years after the events, about 285 A.D., the first depiction of Jesus looking like the man of the shroud shows up in the Comitia Catacombs in Rome. And uh, and then there's a gap again, and then the depictions of Jesus, particularly starting with the Orthodox Church, all start looking like the man of the shroud. So it's obvious that it was hidden for a while, came into public uh, knowledge for some period of time, then disappeared again. Uh, there was a cloth known as the Mandillion, some people believe that it was um, the Shroud of Turin. It was uh, in Constantinople, and when the Crusaders came and sacked the city, that cloth disappeared, never to be seen again, and 150 years later, the Shroud of Turin shows up in France in the hands of a Crusader. So, can you make the connection? Well, you know, any other ar- uh, archaeological object, nobody would care if there was a little... Barry, we're going we're gonna to cut you short right there. When we come back, we'll finish up on that. I also want to ask about... Any evidence of levitation of the man that was inside the Shroud of Turin, the, the, the cloth? We'll take a break. We'll be back more on the Shroud of Turin right after this.
Okay, we are back. My guest is Barry Schwartz, and we're talking about the Shroud of Turin. Uh, before we get back to Barry, a quick note here, quick program note. Three of my books, my book on prayer for finances, my book on the JFK assassination, and my book on credit scoring, how to raise your credit score 100 points in 100 days. So all three of those books are available for the next day or so for free download over at Amazon. So how to find it, the easiest way to do it is to go to Amazon.com, type in my name, James L. Paris, Paris just like the city in France. You'll find my Amazon page, and you'll find those three books are right now available for free download, uh, no cost at all. And you don't need a Kindle device. You can read them right on your computer screen. We do that about every three months for a couple of days, a promotion we do with Amazon. So that is available for those three books. Our guest tonight is Barry Schwartz. We're talking about the Shroud of Turin. And, uh, Barry, I'm sorry we had to interrupt you again uh, with, with that break there. We're going to take uh, a few a few more questions by email. Or, folks, uh, if you want to join us, this is your last chance to jump on board here on the phone lines with a question over the telephone, 877-317-6432, 877-317-6432. Your questions about the Shroud of Turin. Uh, question coming in here. Someone in the Chicago area is listening to us, and they want to know, they say they have read uh, articles saying that recent evidence would support the notion that the man inside uh, the shroud levitated at some point. Do we know that? Uh, not really, no. Um, I, uh, there's uh, one or two folks who proposed that theory that the man was floating vertically, actually. Um, I don't believe that the evidence on the shroud uh, shows that because there is a flattening of the buttocks and the shoulders indicating the laying on his back. So uh, I think that the idea of levitation, although it's interesting, and uh, it came from quite a credible source, I, I don't believe the evidence supports that. And what's interesting to me about the shroud is that um, whatever it was, uh, you know, the, the, this mystical uh, power that created uh, this imprint, uh, why is it that there seems to be so many critics, uh, Barry, uh, of this? It, it would seem to me that just the fact that, that one can't figure out how this imprint was made would be a significant piece of evidence, uh, but it seems like there's a lot of critics, and every time the Shroud of Turin goes back out on exhibit. All of the critics come back out again. Sure. Can you share with me, like, the top one or two uh, criticisms uh, of the skeptics? And I know there was even a skeptic magazine that from time to time will do, like, sure. special issues about why yeah. it's not legitimate. What are some of the major criticisms of the skeptics? Well, I think that the, the, biggest, the biggest criticism of the skeptic is that there is a break in its chain of custody throughout the history of the Shroud, and I can recommend a book by Ian Wilson called The Blood in the Shroud, which put together probably one of the better histories of the missing era of the Shroud. You can go to Shroud.com and you can find the, the documented history from mid-1300s to the present day. But I think the biggest complaint is the skeptics say, well, there's, there's a break in the chain of custody, and of course... There's a letter that was written by a bishop, supposedly, in uh, I think the 14 or 1500s, I'm sorry, I'm not good on the dates, uh, that said he knew the artist who painted it, 
but no signed letter of that was ever found. The, the article of the letter was supposedly sent to the Pope, but there's no record of it in the Vatican. So uh, I think what we were seeing there was local politics at play. The bishop uh, was upset that <coughs> the owners of the shroud were displaying it in their little church, and they weren't uh, giving any of the proceeds to the bishop. So I think we, what we have there is a kind of a red herring. But those are the kind of things that the skeptics like to point out. And, and look, uh, everybody's entitled with their opinion. I, my opinion was just the opposite of what it is today when I first started all this. But, you know, I was privileged to be a part of this, to have my hands on this piece of cloth, to study it up close and personal, and to have access to all the science throughout the years. And, it, 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 you know, the science supports the authenticity more than not. And will we ever have a definitive answer? Probably not. And so I always tell people, look, nobody's faith should rely on a piece of cloth in the first place, and the answer to faith isn't on that cloth. But it may well be in the eyes and hearts of those who look upon it, so I always tell everybody for them to look at it and see what we know about it and then make the, make a decision for themselves. Well, the one part of it that just gives me chills is the crown of thorns. I, I just can't get beyond that because, I mean, that to me is what would significantly uh, take that uh, cloth and, and set it aside as something extremely unique and, of course, uh, following the gospel account. Uh, someone is asking here by email, they don't give us their location, but they want to know, are there, is there a possibility of any new developments that could happen with the Shroud based on advancements in technology? In other words, when you folks did this, it was the late 70s, early 80s. Is there any technology coming or exists today that wasn't around the last time this was done that could help us make progress one way or the other, authenticating or or deciding this isn't the real thing? Well, I think there's absolutely. First of all, it's a great question. Second of all, I think that there's, there are massive improvements in technology over the last 36 years. Uh, we can do things like digital imaging spectroscopy, which virtually allows us to do chemical analysis without even touching the cloth. So, yes, there are technologies available today that were not available in 1978 that would help us better understand what's on the shroud. I don't know if the mystery will ever be solved, if it will prove beyond any doubt that this is authentic or not authentic, but I do think that there is other data that could be gathered from the shroud that could further increase our knowledge and perhaps better come to understand how that image formed. And, uh, you know, as far as the significance of the image, I think people have to decide that for themselves, uh, what the drought means to them. But as far as science goes, yes, there's plenty more that science could do, given the opportunity. We're all hopeful that that will happen at some point in the future. And emailers, please put your location. That just makes it more interesting. I love to see the location of, of where you're listening. Uh, Jim at ChristianMoney.com. Jim at ChristianMoney.com. Um, so we've got the next question here coming in from Baton Rouge, Louisiana, and they want to know, has the religious community accepted the shroud? They're asking, for example, what does the Vatican make of the shroud? Do we have uh, any widespread position one way or the other uh, in support of uh, the shroud as being legitimate within the religious community? Well, look, I cannot, obviously I can't speak for the Vatican, but I will say this, that um, the Vatican has never taken a formal official position in declaring it a, an authentic relic or not. 
and I think that's wisdom on the part of the, you know, the Vatican. Um, I do think, though, that, uh, you know, there are several photographs of several previous popes kneeling and praying before the crowd. I don't think any of those popes would have done so if they thought it was a fake. So even though that's a sort of an unspoken affirmation, I do believe that uh, not just Catholics, though, uh, that was one of the biggest uh, things that I, I kind of was shocked by was that there are many Christians who are skeptics, but I have seen in the last few years a, a much more uh, growing interest on the part of other Christian denominations, Protestant denominations, Lutheran, Methodist, Evangelicals, uh, Messianic Jewish uh, organizations that have shown a great interest in Shroud, and my travel and lecture schedule has been reflecting that. I'm not just speaking in Catholic churches anymore. So I think there's a growing interest and a growing acceptance about the Shroud, but I don't think that it's a universal thing, and I think there's still a lot of questions that need to be answered. And, you know, it's interesting, um, uh, Barry, there's still a lot of people that uh, doubt the historicity of Jesus Christ. You know, they wonder, you know, was he really a, a person that walked the earth? And, of course, you know, there's there's huge evidence to support the historicity of Jesus Christ. And now we've got this doc, you know, we've, we've now got all this documentation about the shroud. And, I mean, who knows? It just really, really is an interesting topic. And we're so glad that you came tonight uh, to talk with us about it. Take our last few seconds, sir, about 20 seconds, 30 seconds. Give us your website or any other information you'd like sure. to give out. Okay, our organization is the Shroud of Turin Education and Research Association. We're a 501c3 nonprofit. The website is www.shroud.com. 